0: So, Bob, I have a, an email from someone who terminated with their therapist, and uh, I think what happened was completely unethical, and so I wanted to tell you the story of what I believe to be an unethical therapist behavior and see what you think about it. What do you say?
1: We can talk about
0: it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, who are you Bob?
1: I am your old friend from graduate school way back when and also a therapist in practice here in Seattle.
0: So in this episode, we're going to talk about a lot of technical and other kinds of interesting things. We're going to talk about trauma treatment. We're going to talk about uh, unethical practices by therapists that a listener has written in about. We're going to talk about EMDR. We're going to talk about DBT. Bob and I are going to talk about our attachment styles and our personality disorder traits. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about online therapy and some of the bad practices that are going on there. We're going to review different ethical codes as they relate to termination. I'm going to rant about various different things that I see in supervision and in training around trauma therapy and uh, borderline therapy, therapy of preoccupied people. Right. I'm going to get hot under the collar. I can tell I'm already hot under the collar. So uh, let's get into it. But I have to tell everyone this is an episode just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast yet, you have to – if you want to listen to this full episode along with hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron of this podcast. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, I will tell you how to access all of our – premium episodes. And also know that you won't have to listen to advertisements if you're a patron. And you also will know that some of your uh, monthly pledge goes towards various charities we support, including a $2,000 scholarship, which we're going to give away soon to one of our uh, scholarship applicants. A a needy student in mental health, Uh, we will be giving $2,000 to to help them get through graduate school so they they can make a positive difference in the world. Do we know who yet? No. Uh, we're still reviewing the applications. All right. At least at the time of this recording. Who knows yeah. at what order this is going to be released. But anyway, so yeah, go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast, like Bob's wife. <laughs> <laughs> this email is from Jenny from Portland. She says... Uh, she, she, she sent an email in which she talks about she had a first therapist that she worked with who was really helpful. And then uh, uh, skipping here, she had a second therapist that was very helpful. After, after six months of building a relationship, she finally felt safe enough to tell her therapist – I don't know why I told you about the two therapists, so erase that from your mind. She's right. working with a therapist, <laughs> and after six months six months of building a relationship, she's building trust. She's like, you know, can I trust this person? She finally felt safe enough to tell her therapist about the abuse she experienced with her ex-husband. Oh, And she hadn't told anyone else about the details about this. And apparently the abuse was really quite extensive. Her ex-husband actually had gone to prison for the abuse. Oh, my God. Which, you know has to be severe. I think that's what she was saying. Wow. She He went to prison and I'm pretty sure <clears throat> it was for either abuse or stalking or something. Eek. So quite traumatic for her six months into therapy. She, she finally um, reveals this because that would be a natural thing to talk about in therapy, right? The next week, this is her saying the next week he told me to not make any more appointments. And that I should look into medication or EMDR. Bob, what do you think about that?
1: Well, there's no, I'm just, just, where's the, there's, wow,
0: I, I'm, <laughs> wow, like getting hit in the face with a brick. Yeah. Yeah, well, what do you think? Like, uh, medication, EMDR, you know, uh, don't make any more appointments?
1: Well, what kind of context did he put that in? Did he say, look, I don't think I can be the therapist you need me to be, and, you know, you deserve treatment? Or did he just say, you know, like, you need drugs and EMDR and, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, let's give him the best case scenario, given the details that we have here. All right. Let's say that he did lay all that out and say, like, I'm not the best therapist for you. I don't know much about this sort of thing. I recommend looking into EMDR and or medication, uh, even though we don't necessarily know that that's what he did. Yeah. Uh, what would you think about that? Is that unethical? Is that ethical? Is it bad? Is it good?
1: It's not so good. I, I think because, you know, like um, it, it, there's no inquiry. There's no, the, There's no inquiry into, okay, so what's it like to talk to me about it? what what um what are you hoping to happen how can i be helpful to you it's just a immediate jump to well here's my limits yeah. and i can't do it and it sounds um like scared or intimidated or um rejecting and you know like if it's fu- if if he can't be the therapist she needs him to be because of some limitation or whatever okay fine but he owes her more than just the
0: flat referral have you heard of therapists doing things like this? Yeah,
1: yeah, I have. It's disgusting.
0: It's dis- So you're disgusted with it?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. This is like, if it happened to me, like if somebody, if I was seeing somebody and they said that to me, I, I'd feel awful, like embarrassed, rejected, ashamed, leaving the office would be like, oh, shit. And then I'd wonder for days or weeks or whatever, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Especially if... I trusted them with something, you know, like that um, um, I was very careful about who I shared it with. I mean, like, oh, my God, this poor lady. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah i got right. problems with it. Right. So, what a lot of people will say is they will say, like, well, if you don't feel competent with something, then, you know, feel free to refer someone out. Yeah, you know, That's a principle that people yeah. will say. yeah. In fact... But what people sort of begin with is they sort of begin with the notion that they have to be a therapist for everybody. Right. And then there's this new notion that says, like, no, actually, there's it's not really possible for you to be competent with every presenting problem. Right. So you actually owe it to your clients and to tell them when you're not good with something. If that's where you end your principles and your you know understanding of that process, then uh, you've only gone so far down the road of understanding how to be a good therapist. Yeah. Because if every... So one of the things that people will often refer out are borderline or narcissistic clients oh, or histri- histrionic I know, clients. I know. They will say, well, I'm not competent working with this, so I'm going to refer them out. That's what I, they'll say on the surface. I'd say that's the best case scenario that somebody would say that, though. Right. They'll say other shit, too. We, what they'll at least say to yeah. their colleagues or to their spouse when they come home at night is... Right. I have a ridiculous client who I hate and I don't want to work with them, or I'm afraid they're going to sue me for like some weird reason, some weird stigma or stereotype about borderline people. Right. Yeah. Right. And they, but then they will say, I'm sorry, I'm not competent to work with you. So right, right.
1: It's the polite way to reject.
0: Right. So if everyone was like this, if every, if every clinician did this and many clinicians do, yeah, then there are lots of people who arguably need the help the most who aren't getting any help. I mean, yeah. ima- just, let's just go to the medical field. So let's go. Let's say you go to your primary doc and you have a what looks to be maybe skin cancer on your on your hand. Your primary doc is like, "Well, I can't, I can't assess that. I'm not. That's not an expertise of mine." But down the hall, right, <laughs> is someone who does. So go ahead and make an appointment with that person. In our field, there isn't such a thing. Do mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Now, what this person is saying is is EMDR, which I have to say drives me fucking crazy. In our society, in our in our world, our clinician world, there's this notion that the only Viable treatment for trauma is EMDR. Oh yeah, which I find to be one of the dumbest things that we've ever <laughs> propagated in our in our culture of of psychotherapy. There is a long tradition and massive research in many clinicians that are treating trauma that have never even had a, one possible training in EMDR. Right, I'm one of those people. Sure, I treat trauma. Right. I have a vague notion. I did a deep dive on EMDR, so I have a, a vague memory of that episode. Sure. I, I don't know EMDR either. And when I did do a deep dive on EMDR, it basically is a formalized version of exposure therapy that happens to have quote-unquote bilateral stimulation. Yeah. So... Uh, Nobody it, knows if the bilateral stimulation is the main effect. Right. Yeah, Because the bilateral stimulation meaning that you uh, the common ways you watch this uh this blinking light that goes back and forth right. so while you're telling your trauma dramatic stories you're lo- you're like looking to the right then the left then the right then the left and yeah but that's just one element like right. there's several weeks build up even to that point right um, and after that point, there's many weeks where you sort of talk about the meaning of the trauma and what that means to your safety and right. the story of your life and how you regulate your emotions and and
1: that could coincide with lots of other kinds of therapy and therapists who just don't do the bilateral stim as you tell the story. Right. Yeah.
0: Which is what you, you know, and I do when we treat trauma,
1: right? Yeah. Well, you know, as as people get more savvy about brains and neuroscience or whatever. What are we going to discover about this EMDR and its meaning? Because as I understand it, they know EMDR helps with trauma. They just don't know what it is in EMDR that helps with trauma. And the presumption for the EMDR practitioners is that it's the bilateral stim. And yet, I've I've similar to you, I've noticed that EMDR people are actually very good at doing exposure.
0: Right. So there's been lots of studies, and it's easy to do. Yeah. Like, all you have to do is you take EMDR people who are trained, and you... So you take a hundred uh, people with PTSD. You put fifty in right. with, with standard EMDR, and then you take the other fifty and you either put them in exposure therapy, what they call supportive therapy, which is not trauma focused, or you put them in what they call sham EMDR therapy, where you do everything an EMDR therapist does except for the bilateral stimulation, right. and you might even like do something that looks like bilateral stimulation to trick the because because a lot of clinicians you know. Um, the placebo effect is real.
1: Yeah. Oh, totally.
0: And very weird. Like, there are even studies that show when you know it's a placebo, it's more likely to work. Oh, fabulous. Like, how weird is that? I know. You put your faith in placebo. Awesome. Even if you don't believe in placebos. (laughs) Even if you're like, I don't believe in sugar pills to to fix my depression. On average, when you, you know, look at lots of people – even among people who don't believe in placebo who know it's a placebo are more likely to have symptom reduction for depression or other, even physical things like like pain or I think even things like cancer or IBS or something, you know, like things that are what we associate to have like physical, even though the brain is a physical thing. Anyway, the point is, is that you can study this and, and what they find, some studies show that the bilateral stimulation has a slightly Increased effect in the ability to reduce PTSD symptoms related to PTSD or uh, emdR that doesn 't have bilateral stimulation, but some studies show it doesn 't make any difference uh-huh. that it 's really all the other elements it 's sort of like the research that you did with the dbt the Dbt stuff yeah the model with DBT uh, that you told me was you have group classes where you have these groups of ten ish, yeah. and a teacher such as yourself teaches right. skills. And you just follow the module, like yep. we're at week 12 now, we do this, we do how to notice your distress. right? And you do that. And then the other component of DBT is an individual meeting once a week with a DBT therapist that also goes over the skills, but also... uh is more, them more
1: personally to where you... More you personal. Know. Yeah.
0: And maybe more of a bond. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you actually were a part. Since DBT, Marshall Linehan is out of University of Washington, which is a uh, major research psychology university and medical facility. University, they have a lot of funds for uh, you know funding research yeah. for their uh, you know prominent professors such as Linehan, and, one, right. and so you were part of a study in which they were trying to figure out uh whether which part of it yeah. was effective and why and, and what were the findings again? So
1: the findings were standard DBT, which is individual DBT therapy plus skills training, is helpful for folks who have borderline personality disorder. Her population is women who meet criteria for BPD who have trouble with suicide and self-harm impulses. And the research is that standard DBT helps, which everybody already knew. And then the other two component the other two uh, conditions were individual counseling, DBT counseling with no skills training and then the third one was just skills training with no individual counseling. And then they wanted to see you know, what helped. And it turns out that skills training with no individual counseling was nearly as effective as standard DBT. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, mind-blowing. At the beginning of the study, if you told me that was going to happen, you would have knocked me over with a feather.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not to say that individual therapy doesn't help. No, but, no. But when you're comparing the DBT model in terms of the individual and group to just individual DBT or just group. Right. Turns out that the main helping force in the DBT model is the group class as opposed to the individual therapy component. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so I don't know how we got there. Well,
1: we were talking about EMDR and doing it with and without the bilateral stim to see, and you said some studies show that the bilateral stuff – the eye movement stuff has an impact, and some studies show that it doesn't. But one thing that's clear is that EMDR therapists are very good at exposure treatment.
0: Right. So it drives me crazy that your therapist Jenny from Portland uh, just said EMDR because right. really what they should be saying is what we tend to term as trauma focused pe- uh, therapy or trauma specialists. Right. Um, it, it, there's a bit of a problem in our society in that even among clinicians. That when you think trauma, you think EMDR, in the same way that when you think borderline, you think DBT. There's just – DBT, I, I don't know why, but I, I, there's just certain things that are trendy on some level. But I also think that EMDR and DBT are just really good at advertising themselves. That's true. Borderline – there are so many treatments for borderline. Um Interpersonal therapy, for right. example, has been demonstrated time and time again to be effective with borderline personality,
1: which is not even a surprise.
0: Right, not yeah. a surprise. But you say that in a certain crowd of people, they'll be like, "Huh, I've yeah. never heard that." Right. Some people will be like, "What's interpersonal therapy?" Right, they won't even know what the fuck it is. Yeah, and so, so the same with exposure. There's something. There's something um, bad about the marketing of exposure therapy. Uh, And also, I think it kind of got a bad rap because you have – I can't remember the terminology. I'm trying to think back to my grad school days. But you have prolonged exposure, which is what I and I think you practice. Yeah. And then you have the sudden exposure or the flooding exposure.
1: Yeah. I don't know if anybody does that. It works, but it's unnecessarily awful.
0: Yeah. And more risky from what I understand. Yeah. So prolonged exposure is is essentially what EMDR does, which is – you expose the client to, to the traumatic memories through imaginal exposure. Right. Just reliving it in your head. Right. You just tell the story right. or you just relive it in your head. Like yeah. EMDR, actually, I think, doesn't actually require you to verbalize it. You just have to think about it. No kidding. Yeah. I didn't know that. It doesn't – yeah, I mean – It doesn't matter. Right. The brain it all the same anyways. That's right. Yeah. There is something, I think, more real about saying it out loud. I do, too. That I have experienced. But – so in that way, you can actually – Uh, use that as a stepping stone up to the eventual saying it out loud is to actually just think about it. Yeah. Uh, But the idea is, is that as you expose yourself to those uh, memories that you uh, eventually become habituated to it and it no longer affects you and you're no longer triggered to have panic. You no longer have nightmares. You're no longer pushed into a position of depression because you're just so beaten down by your own anxiety. You're no longer holed up in your house for fear of being triggered. Uh, You're no longer having flashbacks. Um, You have well-being again. You're less likely to dissociate, all that kind of stuff. So a prolonged exposure to something, you eventually become habituated to it. The same principle is true when you walk into someone's house and you're like, my God, there is a cat that lives in this house and this litter box smells like <laughs> shit. And then you look, at the, you look at your friend who owns this apartment and you're like, How do how, you live how in this house? You live here? Yeah. And they're like, What do you mean? I don't notice anything. Right. You know, they call it nose blindness. Right. Well, that's habituation. Yeah. It's the same as when you get on a train in France or in India and you smell the BO. Yeah. And you're like, Holy mackerel. The amount of BO on this train is, how do people live with this? Well, because if you grow up in a society where they're not uh, you know, compulsively weird about body order <laughs> and are constantly covering it up with all these chemicals and scents and everything, from day one, you just become used to Well, that's just how people smell, and your, right. your, your nose just doesn't notice it anymore, yeah. and it doesn't bother you anymore. Right. Well, the same is true when it comes to traumatic memories a lot of us have a lot of uh bad memories that we've become habituated to and they don't they no longer bother us anymore but for people with PTSD. So prolonged exposure that's now flooding exposure or sudden exposure I, I can't remember the exact term it's like a it's like very intense maybe it's yeah. intensive exposure I can't remember the term but essentially what you do and instead of prolonged exposure you just suddenly flood someone. So if they have a fear of spiders, for example, oh, you just force them to roll in a bucket full of spiders or something. <laughs> and Or with with the traumatic memories, you ask yeah. them to, to just, you, you kind of force them to tell you the story, like even though they're extremely distressed, right. they have this, this huge spike in distress as they're talking about it. And the idea goes is that it's sort of like ripping the bandaid off yeah. really fast. So you're getting all the pain in one yeah. uh, instance and the brain eventually becomes habituated to it. Yeah. Um, the problem with the flooding type is that it can be so overwhelming that people can have, uh, they can dissociate, yeah. they can kill themselves afterwards. Yeah, they right. could run away from therapy. So prolonged exposure is more likely yeah. to have people retain therapy. they you know, less likely to kill themselves and all that kind of stuff. It takes longer, it's more expensive, but it's much more palatable to people. Plus, when I'm selling trauma therapy to people, if I was to tell them, we're going to do this in one session, like, they would never come back. They have a hard enough time with the idea that we're going to go really slow. So anyway, um, so it bothers me that uh, if it's true, I mean, I'm taking your word for it, Jenny from Portland, that your therapist just said, medication or EMDR. The other thing is it's like medication for trauma? What are you talking about? That's really silly.
1: There's no research that medication for trauma itself is useful. There might be medication for problems with anxiety or depression, but the presumption that you need medication because you have a trauma history or you have trouble with trauma is, you know, silly. Right.
0: The other thing that's really going to get my blood boiling on this is this practice that Bob also gets annoyed with and you know talked about how horrible it is to after 6 months of therapy and building up a relationship to have your therapist suddenly just say I'm dropping you yeah. be, be, because of you because of your problems right you came to me with your problems and because of your problems I'm I'm rejecting you I'm terminating with you now yeah. of course that's not how the therapist sees it but this drives me fucking crazy. Like I had a supervisee who has a uh, – I'm the secondary supervisor. My supervisee has a main supervisor. So I'm a supplement supervisor. And my supervisee is like, so, you know, I was with my other supervisor and she was telling me that um, I should terminate with this client because this, this client is uh, falling in love with me and, ha- having a, and has a crush on me and is, you know, mm-hmm. trying to – invade my boundaries, you know, in these various ways. And so, you know, I asked her, I said, "Well, do you feel unsafe? Do you, you know, cuz that's the number one." Is like, "Sure. It do you feel that this person's going to hurt you or bother you or something?" Cat's joining us.
1: Meow. She just doesn't
0: like this shit either. Meow. 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 What? Normally, I'd cut all this out, but I got an email from someone the other day that said they like it when the cat joins the podcast. Cat
1: joins the podcast almost every time I'm here. Oh,
0: really? Yeah. Well, into the microphone.
1: (coughs) What? (coughs) What? She's right up in the mic. What? She's a natural. What?
0: Uh Oh, now the dog's coming. See, when the dog hears the cat meowing like this, the dog's like, it kind of sounds like the cat's getting food. Because the cat goes crazy when the cat's getting food, so now the dog's like, "Well, wait, am I going to get food? Somebody around here getting something? Yeah. Anyway, so, so this, so
1: this, this uh, supervisee of yours is, you know, you're asking her questions about whether or not she feels
0: safe. You're such a great person to get me back on track. You bet. Um, so. She is being told by her other supervisor that she needs to terminate with this client after, you know, a certain amount of time. It's been months of, I don't know, a long time into the therapeutic relationship. Mm. And I'm like, as I, (laughs) my supervisees, you know, I, I'm sure it bothers them, but I'm like, so supervise, so this is a group supervision meeting. I, I said, so supervisees, why do people come to therapy? And they all say in unison, because people have problems and I'm always like that sentiment I find to be missing. in a lot of training and supervision and principles that therapists follow, it's like clients come to therapy because they have problems. And if those problems annoy you or make it so that you're like, how dare you have problems? I reject you and your problems. It's like, well, that's why they're there, you know, if you go to your physician and you have the flu and your flu and your physician is like, oh, "You have the flu, like what am I supposed to do with that shit like you need to come to me when you're healthy, yeah, like I don't like if your physician said, "I only want you coming to me when you're not sick, when you're not ill, when you're not in pain, like that doesn't make any sense, no right? sense so People come to therapy because they have problems, and borderline people, histrionic people, preoccupied people, are prone to falling in love with their therapists. Yeah. Why? Because they have such an intense attachment injury as a child that, one, they have a hard time differentiating between spouses and randos, like your therapist, you know? And also, when their therapist exhibits a safe, secure attachment… Caring all of their old, you know, uh, attachment needs come pouring out. And if you're if you're 3 years old what you do or 7 years old what you do. And this happens when you work with kids who have attachment injuries. They'll just drape themselves over you and they'll want it they'll want you to adopt them. That's yeah. what that's what a 7-year-old does. 7-year-old clients with, you know, this this attachment reactive attachment issue, they'll, they'll walk over to you. The, 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 the first session you meet them and, and they'll just like, they'll just be sitting in your lap and it feels warm and you feel like, Oh, okay. If, if your policy is that's cool, then you, then you just do that. And most people who work with seven year olds or younger, it's, it's, you know, depending on the situation, it's totally fine to do that kind of thing. But no one blinks an eye at that, or at least most play therapists don't really blink an eye at that. But somehow, so fast forward, the yeah. person's 35, well, right. they don't sit on your lap and act like a child. What they do is they fall in love with you because that's the primary way adults bond with other people is through romance. Yeah, That's the model they have, and sexually, by the way, particularly for men. Right, And so they will, that's how, those are the thoughts that will emerge in their mind. They'll be convinced they're in love with you and that they want to have sex with you. And... And it's well-documented. We're talking going back to like literally 100 years ago. We've known about this phenomenon. It's not unknown to us. So so, now what I'll say is if you don't want to work with those kinds of people because, one, you don't feel competent, which I have to say, get competent. Get competent. Yeah. Uh, You know, like one of the things that you'll hear some people say, rarely in our circles will you hear this, but some people will say – Well, I'm not competent working with black people, or I'm not competent working with gay people, so I'm not going to work with them. Like, that sounds bad, right?
1: Well, it just sounds like subtle racism.
0: Right. And we can absolutely... Not so subtle, maybe. Right. We can absolutely be bigoted towards people who are borderline. Oh, yeah. Oh, it happens. Oh, it's, it's disgusting how much it actually is happening. Or people who have been traumatized. Oh, yeah. And so just because you're like, well, I'm not competent with trauma, or I'm not competent with borderline, it's like, you know, on some level, okay, fine. But here's the thing. You can't fucking tell someone six months into a relationship that you're suddenly incompetent with something. Yeah. You need to tell them, one, up front, and two, you need to screen the fuck out of your clients. Like, the chance that this person has had multiple people who have need, who have been traumatized Reveal at some point they've been traumatized somewhere down the line uh, that they've been is pretty high yeah so unless so if that's your policy so this therapist is basically saying my policy is I don't treat people who have trauma Uh, it's hard to know because we're not talking with the therapist sure but that's how it looks that's how it looks from this letter and according to Bob and I not a surprise we've seen people do shit like this before
1: oh yeah no oh I think I heard about one of these about a month ago yeah what was the story I don't recall okay. I mean
0: it's not uncommon for me to hear it, so right. I don't, I, they run together right, so if that's your if that's your situation, okay, um here's what you do you become a car salesman because you shouldn't be a fucking therapist if you decide to still be a therapist, then you tell your clients up front by the way in first before you even meet with them, right because half of clients have been traumatized, maybe more right. But before you even so they, they email you to set or they call you to make an appointment, you immediately say, by the way, I'm incompetent with trauma. So if that is going to come up at some point, I recommend you seek therapy somewhere else. Um if it's if it's at all a likelihood you're gonna bring up trauma, I can't actually even begin therapy with you. Because well, I can't
1: be the therapist you need me to be is the problem. Right. Right. But it's like the person, the client that falls in love with their therapist, it's like they've got a problem because they did that. Yeah. You know, like, fuck,
0: man. Who really has the problem here? And now my dog's like rolling around on the ground, uh, scratching her back. Because she doesn't like this shit either. Uh, Yeah.
1: Um, You know, when I was uh, uh, in internship, when we were in graduate school, I had this client once, poor, lonely lady, really lovely person, and... um, um, there was an anniversary of something awful that happened to her coming up, and we were talking about ways she was going to cope. And one of the ways that came up is she's like, Well, I can masturbate. And I'm like, Does it help? And she's like, Yeah, it helps. So I go to my team, right? And I say, So we were talking about this, and you know, one of the coping strategies she's going to use is she's going to masturbate. Now, this is all a bunch of like, seasoned therapists who've been around the block for a long time right and i'm this newbie who's been there for like what six months or something right and they freak out like oh my god she's gonna masturbate well does she have some kind of sexual relationship with you and is she like you know transference or blah 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 And they meet, they freak out right my friend david's there he's the he was the shrink on the team he's like yeah oh, i met him oh yeah you know david yeah lovely guy he's like bob one of the things you have to understand is that therapists are just like everybody else and they freak out when it comes to things like sex so, I mean, he says this in front of everybody. and I found it very relieving and also funny. Well, he was quite a blunt character. Yes. Yeah. Decent guy, gentle, but also, you know, no bullshit. Yeah, that's great. I'm so glad he was there for so, that. So, yeah. So, this guy is like rejecting her. Yeah. Oh, and, and can we can we finish the part about your supervisee? Because I don't think we finished that one out.
0: Oh, well, I told her what I'm telling you now, essentially, and educated her further about borderline and preoccupied attachment and disinhibited reactive attachment, you know, and related it to the seven year old. And right. cause she's seen that before and she can relate to that. And then she's like, Oh, and I, so I said, this is just an adult version of that and it's nothing to be afraid of. Right. And it's, it's
1: actually, it's good.
0: It's, that's what I said as well. Yeah. It's good because what it means is the relationship has developed to a point where you've reached that, that, that point, you know, if you weren't, if he was borderline, if he was preoccupied, and you and you weren't seeing this, then in all likelihood, you're not doing enough job. You're not doing a good enough job to bond with to him. bond. Yeah, and this is necessary. And so, through that relationship, so a lot of things are happening when with your with when you're with a borderline preoccupied person, where the relationship is super intense. And therefore now the person, the client really depends on the therapist. Right. And when the therapist, and a lot of things are going to happen. Right. One of them happens to be the client will fall in love with you and want to have sex with you. Sure. Um, they'll think about you all the time, uh, but they'll also be very appreciative of the fact that you're not rejecting them. Yes. Because that's what happened to them when they were, th- you know, 18 months old. Yeah continually rejected that's what happens to these people
1: i think they they are also appreciative of the fact that you are not going to exploit them
0: right because yeah. they might have been sexually abused yeah uh, also they are going to have a corrective experience with you they're uh, they're also going to test you yeah. they're also going to try to disgust you they're going to try to get you to reject them because they are so insecure about people rejecting them for good reasons that they are in a constant state of wondering if you are going to reject right.
1: them. Am I too much for you now?
0: Right. Yeah. And they they also believe they're too much for their therapist. Right. Because of the way they were raised, they right. they deeply believed. They deeply believe that they don't want to believe this, but they really do deeply yeah. believe that they are not lovable. Yeah. They're inherently rejectable. Right. And that no one really cares about about them or maybe anybody right and so on a minute by minute basis they are uh they need reassurance and one of the ways that people do that in addition to all the other ways is by testing you so so there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen and again that go back to like winnicott and freud and Ferenzi and karen horneye and melanie klein like this is a well-known phenomenon and the fact that we have therapists walking around going like Whoa, you got to terminate with that. They're falling in love with you. You got to terminate with them. It's just like, what is wrong with yeah. our society and our yeah. and our industry right now? Right, it, right, right, right. What's wrong with our training? <laughs> what that? It's akin to you go to your physician, you, yeah. you have a spot on your hand that looks right. like cancer and they terminate with you and, and they say, ah, I can't deal with yeah, that shit. It's crazy. It's like people come to therapy with problems one of those problems is preoccupied attachment which can manifest in them falling in love with you nbd read a fucking book uh, that has to do with personality <laughs> there's a chapter on this drives me crazy yeah so so what do you make of it i the way
1: i make of it is that the supervisor is scared is intimidated probably poorly trained and doesn't understand shit but is scared and that it has nothing to do with the client's welfare and everything to do with a sense of self protection
0: true and a i imagine a misconception yeah. that well one of the things is that this is a female therapist with a borderline male client who has fallen in love with his female therapist you know yeah. which has a a political power problem which is which is present for sure yeah And just feels more scary, right? Yeah, I get
1: it. I get it. I think when my clients... When I feel like my clients are falling in love with me, I get scared too.
0: Right. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting scared. No. Yeah. Right, exactly. So one, fear. Yeah. And also, I just think like completely ignorant of what we're talking about. Like they've gone so far afield or... Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't... I w- I'm not surprised that there are supervisors walking around who have these notions and have potentially never been told otherwise. Yeah, that's that's what's crazy. Yeah, that you have supervisors walking around, teachers, professors who believe that who don't even know about the notion of a condition where a client will fall in love with you. Yeah, uh, and how it's related to borderline and right. preoccupied and histrionic and stuff. And dependent personality, by the way too uh right, of course they, they don't even know that that exists they don't even it's just yeah. like they they don't they they probably have a very cursory understanding of personality disorders in general, or maybe personness too what <laughs> what it is to be a human right, yeah, really, like, this is like normal shit right, we all have a personality disorder, oh well, yeah, I mean, we're all on the spectrum, yeah. We're all on one of us, one of the spectrum. You
1: think you're more borderline than me. I don't know. (laughs) Remember that? What? Yeah, this is like, you you and and Berto did did an episode of How Borderline Am I? And I think you said you come up like 20% borderline. And I'm like... No, no, no. If
0: that's what I said, that's not what I've come to recently. I'm more narcissistic um, than borderline. You're narcissistic. Yeah. I mean, borderline and narcissism are real close. They're
1: close, but like 25 years of knowing you...
0: Like what do you, what are you talking about? Well, let me explain. Um I know you know that I have narcissistic traits. I like to, I have a podcast. That's got to be something in the, in the direction. Really everybody that does a podcast is a narcissist? No, it's just this, it's just a and I love it. You know what I mean? Oh, it, we have people that love doing podcasts, they're all fucking narcissists. I no, don't get it. I well, think well, I don't know. Maybe maybe the definition of narcissism needs to be established. Oh, all right. all right. yeah, good idea. The Narcissism definition that I use is the Kohut definition or the Kernberg definition, not the DSM definition. Okay, so say it. The DSM is related, but it is the uh, need, the defense, and it could be functional. Oh, right. Okay, gotcha. To self-esteem issues or distance from other people or boredom. Mm. Or lack of meaning in life, where you turn to activity. I don't know if I ever said this out loud, <laughs> um, where you turn to activity that involves, um, for lack of a better term, building up a grandiose self, uh, making yourself look good, I guess. Yeah. And, or doing things that end up making yourself look good. And you gotcha. kind of know that they end up making yourself look good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Got it. Okay.
0: And, in an extreme version, you'll find narcissistic personality where like Ted Bundy, for example, where you you are completely cut off from input from other people right, and you believe that you are a god and you're something you're you're like special, you're better yeah. than every other human being on the planet right. you're smarter than every other human like, being being the planet.
1: super super defended and right, yeah,
0: so in extreme versions, but you know. I th- the percentage that I landed on for narcissism was was like um 5% honestly cuz it oh, okay. can get quite there's a pretty there's a lot of room between me and like a 50% narcissistic person I think.
1: Yeah, I don't think we could be friends if if you were that high on the scale it would be very hard to enjoy your company. Right. You'd be pretty
0: self-involved and Right. Yeah. And you've known people who are higher up on the scale? Couple. <laughs> yeah, we both <laughs> we both do. Um <laughs> And uh, and with borderline, uh, I would say—I don't think I've ever given it a percentage, but I, maybe I would say, like, on the spectrum, maybe 2% or something. Um, definitely, like, preoccupied—some preoccupied, some preoccupied oh, yeah. uh, traits. My, Me too. So So I consider, and many others do as well, the attachment styles to be related to all this, right? Me too, yeah. Right, so— the, uh, so I consider myself to be mostly secure attachment um, style, yeah. and twenty percent insecure-ish, with it mostly being narcissistic avoidant, with a a smaller section of preoccupied borderline. Right. Um, so along those lines, I don't consider anybody to be a hundred percent secure. So you, everyone has some insecure attachment that they've retained from childhood.
1: Don't you think a bit of insecurity is just the human condition, regardless of childhood wounding?
0: Um, no. I oh. mean, maybe. Maybe. Okay. But you can't emerge from childhood without being wounded. No, the, the, no. The it's, thing that I say to people is, we've all been crying and wanting our parents to come soothe us for a particular amount of time when we believe our parents have been, have abandoned us. Sure. A common example is you're in the crib, Right. And you wake up from a nap, and you start crying. You know, every parent has that. You put your you put your kid down, your sure. infant, your one year old down to nap, and they seem like a bug in a rug, and they're totally happy, and right. they fall. And all of a sudden, like a, an hour later, you just hear this wail, like, ah, and you go, "Oh God, they must they must have woken up for their nap." And you go in there, and you and the kid is, the the, the tears are streaming down their face. Now, to us as adults, we're like, well, you know, that's what babies do. Sure. The emotional experience isn't, they, you know, babies don't like go, well, I'm going to start crying to bring my, No, they are in the depths of their despair. It's life and death. Yeah. They have no notion that you exist if you're not in the room with them. And when they wake up from a nap and they're sort of groggy and confused, in that moment, many infants believe they have been completely abandoned. Right. And their tears are not like a cry. They're not like they're not saying, "Please come and get me." They're they're wailing out of utter despair, like a grief that adults could never, very few of us could ever even come close to the grief that this this one year old child is going through. So, there's no way that you can parent a child. You know, you can reduce it. One of the ways is to not actually put them in a crib in another room. By the way, yeah, right. But um, but there's just no way to like uh, have a kid because you know other things are like they're hungry or they fall down or
1: they have an ache or a pain
0: that you can't see or anticipate. Right? They have a they have a rash and it hurts. Yeah. And they don't know that it's going to be okay because right. you can't no communicate. No context. Yeah. And and or they have a stomach ache or an yeah. ear ache or something. And so all kids emerge. So anything teething, all, or, or uh, weaning from the breast. Right. you know All kids go through a very intense, intense sadness, depression, obliteration, um, horribleness, very, very unbridled, total inability to soothe the self-emotions. And in those moments, you are incurring an attachment injury. It's just it's just going to happen. Yeah,
1: it's just going to happen.
0: So the question is like, well, isn't it inherent to the human condition? I, you know, I guess there's a possibility in the future where you could like potentially rig an an, ex- an experiment where you could reduce those to like a really low level. You know, if you had like, yeah, like Super- three round the clock parents who never had to do anything else and were perfect in every way or something, and you had. You could read yeah. the child's mind with you know some yeah. kind of a device that told you exactly yeah. what they needed. Perfect attunement. Yeah, um, but even then, you know, there's just there's misunderstanding. It's a good description. So, uh, so the fact that I have twenty percent insecure attachment is like um, nothing, you know, unusual. Right. But the way people tend to categorize these things is like, well, because like the research will say, um. 70% of people are, I don't know, 50, 60% of people have secure attachment. Um, hmm. 50, 20% have avoidant. 20% have preoccupied. And 5% have disorganized or something.
1: I also known as fearful avoidant.
0: Fearful avoidant. Yeah. And there's a lot of different terms, which kind of annoys me. But um, yeah. I like disorganized because everyone's fearful. Avoidant people are fearful. Sure. and preoccupied or really, no, I understand in fact, what you're saying the other word for fear, for preoccupied is anxious right so you know
1: yeah right they are all anxious numbness.
0: and fearful like well which yeah. one you know I don't know I thought about disorganized attachment recently I'm like it's highly organized right that's another thing to think about it's like there's an organization yeah totally it's just appears disorganized yeah. or something anyway
1: guess what I am
0: <laughs> oh so would you care to share I mean oh I'm disorganized really yeah how, how, how do you know? Uh, I do both avoidance
1: and preoccupation.
0: Is it severe?
1: Because
0: um, yeah. I consider disorganized to... So in my conceptualization, you know, I have some elements of both. Yeah, And right. some people would say, oh, well, that's disorganized. Right. But I actually don't
1: no, agree with uh, that. it probably doesn't meet the definition, right? Everybody would have elements of both. Right. Right, it's just going to happen.
0: I mean, there might be some people with like, among their insecure attachment, right. they predominantly are right. avoidant i would say that yeah but um but every like everyone is capable and at least occasionally prone to borderline behaviors. sure um so what difference that sort of uh non disorganized mixture to you being actually disorganized which i consider to be like a severe attachment injured you know Uh, scenario? Well, um, uh, personal observation
1: and what I noticed mostly is that um, I am preoccupied when I think that it it happens most of my marriage, not exclusively, when I think that um, let's see, how does this work? I don't know if I could sum it up real quick.
0: Well, let me ask you a question. Sure. So What tells you you have insecure attachment as opposed to secure attachment? How do you know, even just that you have insecure attachment? Well, to the degree that I'm close to somebody, I worry a lot. You worry a lot. Yeah. So what differentiates just regular preoccupied attachment, conceptualizing it as that? Because it's not like we take a blood test and you're... (laughs) But like you conceiving of yourself, conceptualizing yourself. What differentiates between... Uh, maybe even just as, even if it's severe, preoccupied as opposed to disorganized, because well, do you have an answer to that?
1: Well, I think I do. Both I both avoid contact, particularly with Colleen, and I'm uh, obsessed. That's too strong a word. That's that's a pathology word. I'm uh, focused on getting it. It's like I for me, it's like I can't have the thing that I want the most, and if I get it, it's bad.
0: Right, which. Uh, you know, when I think about you and I think about what you just said, I think that what would I think? I would think that maybe in your worst moments you would be exhibiting disorganized attachment, but mm. I would say in your general cruising con- cruising altitude, you're probably just regular preoccupied. Preoccupied. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. I'd say you're describing my worst moments. Yeah, and they're my worst moments happen at home. Yeah, and
0: and they're different from how you usually experience me. Right, yeah. which you've described to me, sure, in the way you have. Yeah. Um, but again, I think you know everyone's capable of disorganizing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You get the right stim. <laughs> right. Right.
1: Um, so yeah. Should we return to Jenny? Yeah. Jenny, I was thinking. So, yeah. Go ahead. As as much as this probably won't help you that much, the situation with your therapist says more about your therapist than anything else. It's not about you. And that sucks because our minds won't interpret it in another way. It'll feel like it's about me. I'll feel like I'm being rejected. And whether the facts point at something else doesn't seem to help that much. And it's also the truth. This ain't about you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thanks. Um, So the last thing I'll say in this section is if you're a therapist out there, so not only do you have to tell people right up front that you're not good with a particular thing, right. so you give them the chance, but you actually can't necessarily depend on them to know where they where the therapy will head. Like, um, some people are traumatized, but they don't know they're traumatized, yeah. and they don't even know what you mean by traumatized. Right. So you have to actually actively screen people. Yeah. If this is your policy that you don't work with borderline, you don't work with trauma— You have to actively screen people prior to beginning a relationship with them or maybe in the first session where you really try to figure out. And if there's any risk that at some later date, there's going to be a major component of the therapy that will involve whatever it is that you have decided you're incompetent and you don't want to work with, then you have to terminate with them right away. Yeah. Saying you know, because I think what a lot of people are doing is just like, well, I'm being ethical. Yeah, I'm doing the ethical thing because I'm not competent with trauma, so I terminated with her and yeah. I referred her somewhere else. Yeah, I'm ethical. No, that's not ethical. Yeah, there are specific guidelines in our ethical codes that specifically talk about terminating services midstream and harming clients. Yeah, uh, so and there's specific things that talk about informed consent. Right. That, you know, this client, Jenny, engaged in a, in therapy on good faith with a therapist in all likelihood, having never been told that this therapist can't work with trauma. Sure. Or at the very least wasn't told, or more specifically wasn't told that this therapist can't deal with situations in which she's going to talk about her abusive ex-husband, which I assume she knew she was eventually going to talk about. Right, And that is an informed consent problem. Yeah. Like, you can't just... Start therapy with someone in that way. So so
1: therapists owe it to themselves and their clients to get good supervision. You hit something that you're not up to or you're scared about or intimidated about, get some help.
0: Yeah. And yeah, you could be five years into your career. I was 15 years into my career before I finally got good supervision with trauma. No shit. Yeah. It was 15 years into my profession of Not being a very good therapist, randomly being okay with hey. some clients with trauma, right? But I had a supervisor who knew a shit ton about trauma, and I, I don't know if it was me initiating or him initiating, but through those meetings, like I solidified, you know, I read more yeah. and I, I treated more, and I would go to him and I'd yeah. go like, "So, what do you think about this?" Because that's the thing, like, therapist is, is it, which I find people don't talk enough about. Therapy is a profession of wisdom. It is not a profession of books or of tests or of classes. It is a profession of wisdom. And if you don't have a wise guide, you will not be a good therapist. No. Just learning the concepts, just being trained, even having experience, doesn't actually give you more than 50% of what you need. You need a wise guide to pull it all together and to work with you at your point of of where you're at in terms of your learning and your development. That's a fact. You know, so anyway, uh, that's what I had. Going on with her email. Oh. So, yeah, it gets worse. Oh. So then I tried online therapy with BetterHelp, and I loved it. I finally felt Okay. It was also much easier to share because it was online. Hmm. So, so she goes to BetterHelp, online therapy, and the therapist is actually helping her with the trauma that she went through. Do
1: they through. do the email sessions or the...
0: BetterHelp is like Talkspace, or I assume it's like Talkspace, in which there are different ways. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is chatting, email, yeah. asynchronous communication right. with also the possibility of video sessions right. or phone sessions. Then after a year, out of nowhere, BetterHelp blocks the therapist from me. Oh, I don't know why. Ooh. They offered me my money back and six months free. Now I don't know if I should look for another therapist. I don't want to have another bad experience with therapy ending, but I also don't want to stop if I can actually heal from the past.
1: What What was the reason for terminating? She content? doesn't know.
0: Oh, they didn't. They didn't. Man, they didn't tell her. So she's finally. So, oh God! So she goes to. So she goes to one therapist. It doesn't work. The therapist was not helpful. She goes to a second therapist. Six months in, she finally reveals he terminates. She turns to online therapy. It's going well, and then all of a sudden, boom! Out of nowhere, BetterHelp emails her and it's like we, you know, we've we've terminated services. He no longer works with us anymore. My God! No explanation yeah. and no way to contact him. Yeah. Um, and actually, what what she was asking me was um, she doesn't know if she should reach out to him because she has his name and she could Google him and try to figure out and in all likelihood he he does have a regular you know phone business phone line that she could call right and she was like well I don't know if I want to bother him and I you know I don't know blah 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 or I, you know I'm scared of like what I might learn that kind of thing oh yeah and um, I was encouraging her to actually reach out I agree yeah yeah uh, one because he might be like so there's a lot of possibilities that could be happening. One is is the ther- therapist could be like, yeah, so I broke a random policy that BetterHelp has that's unreasonable, and they terminated my service. So I'm so glad you, you found me because um, I will continue therapy with you. We yeah. can still do online therapy, but it'll just be th- through this other venue. They or might you have can come a, to my office or something.
1: Does BetterHelp and those kind of services have a non-compete clause?
0: I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, they do have something like that, because obviously if you're a therapist yeah. on BetterHelp session one, right. you, could, you could be like, well, you know, if I'll charge you 75%. Yeah. I'll make more money if we just do this outside. So, yeah, I'm sure they have some kind yeah. of thing like that.
1: Okay, so that could be part of the hitch. But once you're
0: terminated, once you've been fired— Well, most non-compete clauses are for a year after terminating service. But ethically speaking— oh. If BetterHelp decides to sue you in a situation like this, in all likelihood, they would lose because, in my professional legal opinion, because the therapist's or the client's uh, needs come first to some random policy you happen to have at BetterHelp.
1: Okay, but fine. But if that were me, I would be thinking... I signed, I would, here's, I don't know what I'd do, but I'd be thinking, I signed this non compete clause. I have to abide by it because that's the agreement I made. Ethics be damned. I might be intimidated by BetterHelp or because they got a team of lawyers and they're big. Who
0: do you you want to be sued by? BetterHelp or the client? Yeah, I know, I get you. I get (laughs) you.
1: I'm just saying that it could be that the
0: client, that the
1: therapist is, um, you know,
0: thinking that way. The other thing is, is, how would BetterHelp know? Well, good point. And two, would they really care? You know what I mean? Like another good point. Yeah, do they really want to take a therapist to task on this? I mean, because BetterHelp doesn't want this to become publicized that they have situations oh, like this. Yeah,
1: this is bad for their business. They're wearing
0: too many hats, man. They're wearing a business hat and a clinical hat, and they're it's a bind. Right. Well, they're mostly wearing a business hat. Oh yeah, yeah. It's big they, business these hat. are BetterHelp and Talkspace. These are capitalists. Yeah, they are. They're Starbucks. Yeah. They're Costco. They're Goldman Sachs. Oh, that's a tough one. They they don't they have investors. You know, this is a this was it started out as a startup. You know, this wasn't started by a bunch of monks up in the mountains trying to (laughs) trying to make the world a better place. You know, this these these were people wanting to put millions of dollars yeah. into something and make billions back right you know facebook you know right zuckerberg didn't start facebook because he wanted to provide a service to, you know. to society he wanted to make a shit ton of money right and so and he did you know as, as a lot of those people better helps the same thing uh, you know i it's assume a business yeah yeah um so so yeah let me so let's go oh, over sure all the ethical codes that pertain to this um, this is completely unethical, and I told her this, that this happened to this client. I don't know who's to blame, per yeah. se. Someone's to blame. Yeah. Better help or the therapist or both. Yeah. And here's very, uh, in black and white, all our ethical codes. Double A, double the Marriage and Family Therapy Association, ethical codes. Marriage and Family Therapists do not abandon or neglect clients in treatment without making reasonable arrangements for the continuation of treatment. American Counseling Association, which uh, Bob is, is underneath. Counselors do not abandon or neglect clients in counseling. Counselors assist in making appropriate arrangements for the continuation of treatment. Also, counselors prepare a plan for transfer of clients in the case of a counselor's incapacitation, death, retirement, or termination of practice. So this is actually another point to bring up, is that when, as therapists, when you join something like BetterHelp or Talkspace... Since you know, because I actually looked into this years ago, like um, eight years ago, I yeah. actually decided to look into the ethics of online therapy, and I found that in the terms of service, that the therapist and the client both signed. You know that terms of service, you say, I agree? Yeah. Well, I read the entire thing, and it was long. Yeah. And there were things in there that said explicitly, Talkspace and BetterHelp and these other places can at any time fire a therapist without any warning, without any notification to them prior— They they have that they retain that right which is a common term of service for things like i don't know other kinds of th- like facebook probably has something like that they probably have, facebook probably has a thing where they're like at any time we can delete your account yeah. if we want to right this is our platform and we don't we don't have any obligation to you right. as an individual and we don't have to provide an explanation we just, we can do that at any time. You know, you can find an alternative Facebook if you want to do, you know. Th- yeah. So these BetterHelp online people have a very similar kind of thing.
1: Well, all clinics have retained the, the right to fire their clinicians. You know, like if the, if the clinician does something nefarious or unethical, you know, you fire them. It's totally understandable, but you still have an obligation to the client to. Right. And they're
0: saying, well, we don't play
1: that way. Right. So, And we don't have to because we
0: say so. Right, so there's no, there's nothing, right, as you're saying, there's nothing wrong with reserving the right to fire someone Hell for bad no. behavior, Yeah, but there is something wrong with firing them and then being like, um, without any regard for the, right. for, the, for the client, and it would be so easy to facilitate that. Oh, so that. easy. All you, I mean, all you'd have to do would be like, um, you will, you will be terminated in three weeks from our platform, a right. uh, therapist, right? We are going to inform all your clients that you have three weeks left right. on this platform at the end of that time you 'll be cut off and blah 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 um, use this time to terminate with your clients, and you will get no more clients yeah and we 're not going to tell them why you 're terminated that 's up to you if you if you want to tell them right it 's that easy, yeah, not hard would be easily implemented right but better help apparently again, according to Jenny from portland this is this is what she 's saying. Um, so wow. now I'm friends, one of my supervisees actually is a trainer at Talkspace now, Shannon McFarlane, one of my former supervisees. So I feel like I should talk with her about this. It's like, cause she, as a therapist is pretty, she advocates for this kind of thing. She, she wants Talkspace to, to like, for example, one of the things, I don't know if BetterHelp does this, but Talkspace does where not only do they only hire fully licensed therapists, but they also require all the therapists to go through a training with Shannon, actually. Oh, nice. So on how to use online therapy. They don't just let anyone start, you know yeah. what I mean? They, and so some, some not to good practice. Right. They don't have to do that. They no. could probably get away with not doing it, yeah. but they do it. Um, APA, American Psychological Association. Psychologists make reasonable efforts to plan for a facilitating service in the event that psychological services are, are, are interrupted. The Social Work Association. Social workers should take reasonable steps to avoid abandoning clients who are still in need of services, blah, blah, blah. So it's clear. No matter what organization this clinician is from, an ethical uh, principle has been violated, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so my recommendation for clients of online therapy is know what you're getting into. There's a possibility that this could happen. Also, ask your therapist about this possibility at some point. Good. Just be like, so, um, you know, what? do you know the policies of this platform, blah, blah, blah? The other thing is, is, as a client and a therapist, make arrangements for the possibility of this happening. Also, the other thing is, is like if you're a therapist and you're working with online clients, you need to have contact information for them outside of the platform. Because what if BetterHelp just goes belly up, you know? Right. Uh, what if the internet just goes down for, right. for like a month or something? Who knows? Yeah. The The point is, is that to provide ethical service, you have to have ways of contacting your clients yeah. in the case of emergency. Say your client uh, over BetterHelp sends you a message that says, I'm going to kill myself yeah, today. You better have something. And then you email back and you're like, are you okay? And they don't respond. Well, you better have their address. Yeah. You better have their phone number. Right. So so that's the fact that, and I'm guessing that wasn't the case is is what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't know, but I'm guessing that the BetterHelp therapist didn't have any information because I'm also guessing that the therapist would have wanted to reach out to her and say, hey, if you want to continue services with me, blah, blah, blah.
1: Don't you think clients ought to have the similar, like a way to reach the therapist in the event of an emergency or crisis or something?
0: Exactly. For situations like
1: like this. Like, I should think that everybody involved would want all that. Right. Like, not only as good practice, but as good cover my ass. Right. Yeah.
0: Now, the policies of BetterHelp and Talkspace might actually prevent you from doing that. Yeah. Part of that, you know, um, non-compete. Non-compete. In fact, I wouldn't put it past BetterHelp or Talkspace that in the uh, messaging back and forth that they flag certain kinds of... Uh, you know, text that like, looks like a telephone number or an email address or something. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Course. Right.
1: Right. But they might,
0: but the thing is, is these outfits better figure out how to deal with this sort of thing yeah. because, um, this is a problem. The other thing is, is that if you're a therapist with one of these online outfits, understand you're responsible for your clients. The outfit better or talk space is not responsible. Now they can get sued too. But you're a private practitioner using a service, and your ethical codes need to be upheld by you. You can't depend on BetterHelp to uphold your ethical codes. It's the same as if I... Or abandon them. What? It doesn't give you a right to abandon them. Right. And you just dropped your phone. I did. And the cat meowed. The cat's concerned. Because to me, it'd be the same as if you worked in an office building, and... uh, you know, the office decided that they were just one day they were going to like lock you out of your office. Yeah. They were just going to be like, um, sorry, you can't come in. Right. We're selling the building. Yeah. We changed the locks. At, you can't be like, well, I guess I don't have a practice anymore. Right. Or, well, I guess, um, I can't contact my clients cause I don't have their phone number. And so it's in the office. I hope they can find me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's no one would look at that and go like, um, well, the therapist is off the hook. Right. No, you know, like you're responsible and uh, the things that are um, even predictably going to interfere with that, you need to like account for early on. Yeah. So anyway, I just feel really bad for Jenny. I mean, my God, like one therapist, is first therapist is terrible. Yeah. Second therapist drops her because she had trauma (laughs) and her third therapist gets... Cut off from her by BetterHelp, because for God knows why. I mean, that's right. the other thing. It's like, well, what happened that the therapist got yeah. cut off from BetterHelp? You know, like I wonder what you know what that was about. Yeah, right. I'm me too. I'm like all questions in my head. Yeah, there's there's not a there's not a best case scenario. Jenny from Portland has already contacted her therapist, good and engaged in services, and yeah. the therapist is like, yeah. So what happened was BetterHelp and I, I because maybe yeah. even maybe even the therapist was like I started actually trying to get phone numbers of my clients because right. I wanted to, blah 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 yeah, and right. and they terminated me because they thought I was competing with them right. you know maybe it was something like that. Um, in that case, it's like uh, best case scenario, worst case scenario, God knows. Given what I've heard sure. from other people, Jenny
1: deserves. It'd be hard to try again. You know, three times, bad experiences. It'd be hard to try again. But, you know, her health and well-being in her life, they're worth it. Yeah. And so even though any of us would feel bruised and battered and reluctant and, you know, I kind of hope, I I do, I hope she hangs in and finds somebody good. There are good counselors out there. There They're good people. You might have to kick some tires. And that's discouraging. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is a story that I hear a lot. It's one that I don't experience because, as a th- therapist who has always lived in Seattle, you know, you've always lived in Seattle. Yeah, we've we've had private practices since nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, continuous, right? Yeah. So, you and I have very rarely had to like terminate with a client because of something in our lives. You yeah, know? that's true. Yeah, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of our clients have terminated with us. Right on their terms. Yeah they got better, they moved away, um, whatever. And so for you and me, it's just like, this is really weird to have like situations where clients are being terminated um, without the client wanting it to be terminated. And, but I hear this a lot because I think that there are a lot of therapists where they do bounce from different organizations or they do move or... Uh, or they transition from being an intern to a staff therapist at a different location or, you know, there's, there's just a lot of stories I hear about this. And what I say is it's tragic and it's awful, but if you're going to look for therapy in those kinds of venues as a client, and maybe you have to, because that's all you can afford, Hmm. you kind of have to like prepare yourself for that possibility. Oh, how awful. Yeah. And, And sort of like, and you know, and it can't, it can hurt and it can be bad but transitioning um is something that can be done absolutely yeah um so uh yeah keep kicking the tires well that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle thanks for joining us out there please take care of yourself because Jenny you deserve it